In John 4, there's a woman at a well. She's an outcast of outcasts. She doesn't fit in within her people who happen to also be a hated people by the Jewish people. She was known as a Samaritan ethnically. She was known as a harlot publicly. Her business was people's fodder around the table and within the streets. So much so to the point that she waited until the middle of the day when it was at its hottest to go out to the well to get what everyone needs water. Within it, she finds herself face to face with the Jewish man. It was not faux pas, it was not standard that you would interact with a woman in public that wasn't your wife. Some of you could stay out of a lot of trouble if you would be a little bit more cautious about who you interact with in public, (laughs) and in private for that matter. She begins a debate with Jesus about where the true worshipers of God will worship God. And in it, in John chapter 4, Jesus says there's coming a day where the true worshipers will worship God, not in a specific place, but by the Spirit and in truth. Denominationally, we've taken that thought and we've kind of divided it. You have continuationists and cessationists. Continuationists believe that the works and miracles that we see within the context of Scripture continue today. And Cessationists believe that at the canonization of Scripture, when the entire uh, counsel of God's Word was given to us, that those kinds of works became very rare, if not needed. That second part of the theology works until you go to Africa. It works until you go to other countries. And I understand that some, about 128 million, currently do not have the Bible written and available to them in their heart language. And the Holy Spirit does miraculous things, but I would submit to you that God very much still does move, and He still does heal, and I would testify to the day that I die, and even on my deathbed, that I have been a part of experiencing and seeing God move in a miraculous and powerful way. However, we get into trouble, and we divide into camps whenever we love the Spirit, but we don't allow it to lead us into the truth, or when we love the truth, but we don't allow it to take us to the Spirit in its application. You see, when you love the Spirit but you do not have any truth, you don't know what spirit you actually have. So what ends up happening is you begin to find a spirit that emotionalizes and fits your construct. You find a spirit that says the things you want to hear and says the things you want to say and affirms the things you want affirmed, but you're not looking for the Holy Spirit that's set apart that may not agree with you and may actually call you to a holiness and a righteousness that would require His indwelling for you to have. The Bible says that we are to discern the spirits by the Word. That it's through truth that we know whether or not the Spirit is holy or not. And for many of us who love the Spirit, we lack truth. So we get wild and crazy and we find ourselves in an erratic pace of living all because we've got a lot of spirit but no truth. Now on the flip side, a thing that grieves my heart as a pastor is the fact that there are a lot of people that love truth but seem to be afraid of the spirit. Now they would say they're not afraid of the spirit because when you love truth without the spirit, you find a backbone called pride that roots a Phariseeism in their life. That makes it difficult to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. 
Everything has an answer, and there is no mystery when you love truth without spirit. And what you end up becoming is a whitewashed tomb, not my words, Jesus's. You scour the scriptures, and you read about a Savior that never jumps off the page and comes into your view because you are looking for rules and ways in which you can live a independent life from God that somehow gives an assent to God that's void of the power of God, which is why you not only need the truth, but you need the Spirit, because if you don't have both, then what you end up with is pride and death or demonic evil that can't produce the fruit of God. My my concern for our congregation and gathering is that we have a group that's filled with extremes. Some of you, great theology and doctrine students, but poorly uh, at living a life that submits to and is comfortable with the mystery of the work of the Spirit. Some of you, filled with the Spirit, are a spirit, lots of gusto and passion, that's desired at times to be for God, but it often gets misguided with, to you demonizing and dividing, which is a sign that the Spirit of God ain't in you whenever the work of the Spirit that's happening around you begins to divide you from other brothers and sisters that you're meant to be in unity with. So God's given us His Spirit and He's given us His Word, His truth. So that in it, we could be built up, we could be empowered, we could face the attacks and temptations that come with life and from the enemy, and we would have a truth and a sword to respond with. It's a profound thing that you hold in your hands, the Bible. It's the most translated book of all time. It's been translated over 3,000 times into multiple languages. Wycliffe just came out and said that we are within the last decade of biblical illiteracy for it being in every language that's known on earth, including sign language, where actively they are learning different variations of sign language and translating parts of this book, this gospel, this good news into it so that the deaf can hear. Still around 128 million people today do not have access to the Word of God. And cannot read it unless it's a second language they learn in which they can understand, comprehend, and study it. Yeah, you are a very privileged people. The average American house still holds around four Bibles in it. Even in non-believing houses, it's amazing how you'll find Bibles from grandmas that collect dust on the shelves. See, see, within America, it's not access to church, the Bible, or the gospel that we lack, it's a pride, an unwillingness to be around difficult people because we've somehow begun to think that we aren't that difficult. We've somehow begun to think that we aren't that needy, which may be why we often aren't seeing God move in some of the ways that we see Him move in other places where people are free enough to admit a need and free enough to admit a desperation for God that we lack. And so I have a goal that over the next several weeks, we will come to the Word by the Spirit and read it. Read it until it changes our minds. 
Fill our eyes with it until it transforms our thinking. Read it until we are clear on what we're here to do and what we are not here to do. As the Apostle Paul said, there are many of you that are concerned with civilian affairs. We are not called to live as civilians in this world, but we are called to be a people that are set apart for His purpose, His kingdom, His name, and His renown. Whether you are the oldest of old with the least hair and the most gray or the youngest of the young, God's intent would be that you would hear this gospel, receive it by grace through faith, and be changed by it with a mission that would change your life. You see, a lot of us are passing time. It's the most valuable resource you have. My concern is that we're allowing it to pass without it being invested in what will matter at the end of time. My concern is that this week you could survive it again. You could endure it again. You could punch the time clock and get through it again. But you would not experience the power of God that would lead you into it again. That you would not experience nor expect a work of God to break through in it again. And perhaps you would be afraid to sound the alarm of revival that would take place not within the walls of a church, but within the hearts of a people that would overflow into the streets of a nation that are in desperate need of the intervention of God. So I, I want us to become a people who are not afraid to be needy, who are not afraid to look desperate, and who are hell-bent on living dependent on the very power of God that He promised that He would send us after His resurrection. One of my favorite texts that speaks to the power of the Word of God comes in the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke wrote a two-parter. We're at the end of part one. Part two picks up in a book known as the Acts of the Apostles. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that ignites a movement that took 120 witnesses and allowed that witness to go to, by the time we close out our New Testament canon in the book of Revelation, the very ends of the earth that were known at that time. <laughs> Jesus has risen from the dead. He has walked the Emmaus Road with likely a husband and wife who had lingered for three days hoping that what they had seen wasn't true. You see, there was a Jewish belief that the spirit hovered over the body for three days and there was hope for a resuscitation should God intervene within a three-day period. It's also why when Jesus heard about Lazarus being sick, he waited until he had died and it had been three days. Mary's plea to him was not to open the tomb because he had already been dead for three days. It was her saying, this is hopeless and not even you are capable of doing anything about it right now. You may be capable of doing something about it later, but I do not have the faith or carry the belief that you could do something about it now. 
How many times have we found ourselves in Mary and Martha's shoes where we believe that God will do something about what's happening in our life later, but we've lacked the expectation and faith to believe that perhaps God would still do something with it now. That one was free. It will not be found in your notes. Three days had gone by. Why was Jesus doing it? Because everything Jesus said and everything he did was culminating in all of Israel's history and all of the promises and all of the prophecies and everything that we see from Moses to the wisdom literature to the poetry to the prophets, both minor and major, that all had been looking ahead to this moment where what was wrong would be made right by a Messiah that would come and unright or fulfill the law so that what we were under in the law could be lifted off of us so that we could now live by the Spirit freed from the burden of a law that we cannot keep and we're condemned by. Hmm. So three days later, Jesus shows up, rolls the stone back, and Lazarus comes out. Now three days later, the road to Emmaus has been walked by two people who held out hope for three days, but now find it on the least likely moment in the least likely place. Hope has sprung. That the Messiah has risen. He fellowshiped with them around the table. They saw the marks on his hands and then he was gone. They rushed back that night to tell the disciples what they had seen and what had happened. Gathered together, they couldn't believe it still. Even though they had, for many of them, already seen it. They thought it was a spirit or an anomaly, but not the actual resurrected physical body of the Savior that had been marred beyond recognition on the cross just days prior. All of it being prophesied 700 years in advance in Isaiah chapter 53 when it says he was scourged and pierced for our transgression. 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite gospel verses in chapter 5 says that God the Father made him, the Son, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the good news of the great substitute. The fact that you needed help and God came to deliver exactly what you needed. The disciples couldn't believe with their eyes that he was standing in the room now with them and the two witnesses on the Emmaus Road who were there. So Jesus ate some fish in front of them. And then in Luke chapter 24, as he closes out the first writing that he would write, he comes to verse 44 and he says, When I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be be fulfilled. I have told you everything about me that must be fulfilled. This is not new news. This is old news. You've been hearing me refer back to that book in the Old Testament to talk about the things that I was doing in front of you, which is hard for some of them to believe and comprehend. Essentially, he was laying out for them, laying out for them that everything that is in the scriptures, the law of Moses, which is the first five books, the prophets, which is the second major section of the Old Testament consisting of the former prophets, that's Joshua through 2 Kings, and the latter prophets, that's major prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and minor prophets, which is Hosea all the way through the Italian prophet Malachi, that's a preacher joke, it's Malachi, I'm just throwing a little levity in there, that all of it had a context with which it was speaking to a people in a real time, but there was a highway in every book. Genesis has a highway. Exodus has a highway. 
Leviticus has a highway. Deuteronomy has a highway. Numbers has a highway. Joshua has a highway. First and second Kings has a highway. And that highway was running to the moment that the disciples were witnessing. And that was where the Son of God would crack open the sky and come to earth, live the life we couldn't live, die the death we deserve to die, and rise from the dead, which had been predicted in advance before he ever came and did it. You see, a lot of us, we don't desire the Word of God. Because we've come to it to find out things primarily about ourselves instead of things about God. This book is not primarily about you, it's about Him. It says so from the very first chapter and the very first verse. In the beginning, God. That is the beginning of the book. There was a beginning, and before the beginning there was a God. And this beginning came into happening because God moved. God, before the beginning, acted. And as a result of it, there was a beginning that happened, that you and I now are coming into a story that's already begun before we got here. There was a beginning, and the beginning was God. And for many of us, the reason we don't like the Word of God is because we want the Word of God to be about us. And it mainly reveals him, because the truth is when you see him and know him, then you know whose image you've been created in. And when you receive his gospel, you understand that you've received not by your works, but through faith, a salvation that could not be earned, could not be achieved, but it is blood bought and received through faith so that you could be a new follower of Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of God, living under the name that is the name that which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess for the rest of your life. You see, th- this is what you and I are coming to the book for. We're not coming to not primarily know about ourselves. We're coming to know about Him. And when we know Him, there's a byproduct. There's a thing that happens that falls into place. And that is that we, in light of Him, begin to know who we are. But it's first and foremost about Him. If you don't love the book, it may be that you don't love the God of the book because the book's about Him. In the beginning, it's about God. I don't have any interest in that God. I have an interest in fixing my life. Well, your life will be fixed when your life is before God. But let me be very clear. When your chief aim is getting a boyfriend, when your chief aim is getting a raise, when your chief aim is getting affirmation for sinful behavior, when your chief aim is to come to the Word of God, to find apart from God, A word from him that allows you to be independent from God. What you have become is not God's messenger. You are not going to be transformed by the word, but instead you're going to be an editor of God's word, which is what Satan does with the word of God. See, we are not his editors, but we are his witnesses. We are his messengers, and it is our privilege to carry the word of God to the nations around us to proclaim that in Genesis what you will find is a need that is met in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's continued in its message being spread by the Spirit of God through a very broken people in the book of Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and First and Second Thessalonians, and I'm just throwing every book I can think of on the moment right now out to you, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, it is all all about the fact that there is a God that is unchanging, that is good, that is near, and that is available. I mean, this is good news. So he says to his disciples after he has risen, everything that you're reading, all the law, all the prophets, it's all about me. Then, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
How many of you have ever read the Bible at home and then you came and listened to a preacher and you thought, man, that's so much easier to understand when the preacher's talking about it than when I'm at my home reading by myself. Like, it, it's hard. I, I can understand. This is, I can empathize with that. There's a lot of times where I would open the Bible and I'm like, why does this not make sense? Where's the three points? Where's the application? <laughs> in fact, Peter, in 2 Peter, speaking about the Word of God, which was written by the Holy Spirit through a guy named Paul, who was a traitor, says that Paul, in the letters he's written, is difficult to understand. So if you've ever thought the Bible at times is hard to understand, the good news is you're in good company because biblically, within the context of Scripture, Peter wrote, Paul, who by the Holy Spirit wrote Ephesians, wrote Galatians, wrote, is believed to have written Romans, like, it's hard at times to understand. All right? The disciples were relatively untrained, uneducated, or undereducated people. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about a lot of the times that he was talking. He would preach a sermon. It gives me a lot of encouragement. And they had no clue what Jesus had said. Because there's a lot of times where I preach sermons, and you look at me like some of you are looking at me now, and I don't know. Did, that, did anything happen? Is it the word, did the word of God go out? Did it return? I, I don't know. I don't know. Because you look at me kind of weird. Like, are you going to wrap it up so that we can make our Super Bowl? Whatever. I, I care and I don't. But here's my point. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Why? Because in previous texts, they didn't know what he was talking about. If you go back to Luke 8, or excuse me, Luke 9, he told them that he was going to die, be crucified, and he would rise again. They didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them. So they couldn't understand it. They were afraid to ask him about it. You going to ask him? No, I ain't going to ask him. You want to admit that you have no clue what half the stuff the barefoot dude's talking about on the stage? No, I... He's talking so fast, we don't understand him. You're going to ask? No, I ain't going to ask. You ask. They didn't want to come to Jesus and go, what's this about? In fact, instead, they, they ended up arguing with Jesus about it. Peter's like, you're not going to do that. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. So you may have had some bad moments in the presence of God where you asked the wrong thing, but you've probably not been called Satan by Jesus. So, I mean, like, <laughs> might be a good day. Here's my point. They go forward a little bit to Luke 18. Guess what? Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again from the grave. They didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. Finally, Jesus dies. He's buried. He walks out of the tomb. After a day of appearing to a lot of people, who in various ways give testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive, which is received in various ways by the disciples with Let's see about that. They finally are standing in the presence of the risen Savior. And their minds finally are opened to get it. The Bible says, if anyone lacks wisdom, you should get a better hermeneutics class and a better method of Bible study to help you understand the Word. Now, let me be very clear. Hermeneutics help you understand the Word of God, its construct, and how to break it down and apply it to your life. It is a good thing. But many of you have gone to the path of education for what the Bible says come to God for, and that is, if you lack wisdom, you're to ask who? God. He may send you to a theologian, but you start by going to God. He may send you to a YouTube Bible teacher, but you start by going to God. If you lack wisdom, 
before you call your daddy, before you call your mama, before you call up Dave Ramsey, before you go to E.F. Hutton, before you go to, some of y'all don't even know who E.F. Hutton is, before you go to anybody else, if you lack wisdom, the starting point is a pause and surrender that looks to God for wisdom and direction and discernment on what he would have you do. The disciples in this moment, I think I have a quote up there that came out of a commentary. The disciples' new understanding of the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection was not achieved through their own study of the Scriptures. What was involved was not new hermeneutic or method of interpretation. Rather, this understanding was given to them by Jesus. They got clarity because they came to the source instead of going around the source to talk about what he could give. Look at the text with me, verse 46. It says this, and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. That's prophetic writing in nature. Where do we see that at? Psalm 22 would be an example of that. Verse 1, I think I threw it up there, Psalm 22, verse 1, for the choir director, Psalm of David, to be sung to the tune of Doe of the Dawn. It's my favorite tune. My God, my God, why have you... Abandoned, forsaken me. Are you so far away when I groan for help? It goes on to speak of the death that the Messiah would die. It's prophetic in nature. Jesus on the cross quotes as the sky darkened this exact text. Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years in advance of the life that Jesus lived. The death in which Jesus would die was foretold and predicted. Let me give you a snippet. It was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. This may be foreign to you. You don't earn and get your life together before you come to God. You come as you are. There was a band in the 90s that made a song about it. You come as you are. You don't come in your future promised self. You don't come with promises of how you're going to fix yourself. You stop trying to fix yourself. Your self-effort of fixing yourself is the problem. You're not helping God. You're in the way of God. It's through surrender that you experience the power of God. So stop trying to fix what's broke and bring it to the God who can actually fix what's broke in your life. The blood has been spilt. If you want to be righteous, know it won't be self-attained by self-pursuit and effort. It'll be given by the blood. Do you want to be made holy and set apart? It won't be a holiness derived of your actions. It'll be a holiness derived of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and your surrender to His work in you your life. It's by His blood that the Spirit comes. You need to understand it's by Him that you experience righteousness and holiness and His very power and presence. Look at what the text ends with. Verse 47. It was predicted that I would die and I would rise. That's what he says. Verse 47. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations. This is where you and I kick in. Okay. If you... I, I have a belief that we as a country have become very silent in our witness, very ineffective in our witness, because we do not know the book that reveals the Jesus that we are called to proclaim. 
pseudo-Jesuses have no authority. Jesuses that are all love, no truth, have no authority. Jesuses that are all truth and no love have no authority because they're not the Jesus that's found within the pages of the Bible. Jesuses that were human that became God have no authority. I don't care who knocks on your door and tells you. This is what 1 John is refuting whenever he writes his letter to the church. This belief that Jesus became God but wasn't God or wasn't co-equal to the Father and co-eternal with him. And for many of you, we have pseudo-Jesuses that we've been adhering and preaching to that are no Jesus at all. It's his name. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus who was perfect. You see, the, the wage of sin is death. You've earned it. But his wage was righteousness. He had earned it. <laughs> so whenever he chose to step in and take our wage, he was able to exchange it and give you his wage. Some of y'all are too busy. You're too, you're too focused on the game. You don't realize what, how good that is. He exchanged his wage of righteousness with your wage of sinfulness, took the cross in your place so that he could be the authority that could beckon to a lost and broken people, repent. Repent. Why? Because Jesus can actually fix you. <laughs> Jesus can actually change you. If we are not a people of the word, we will then create a pseudo-Jesus that's not found within the word. When we create a pseudo-Jesus, we'll become a powerless people with words that may mirror dimly the true Jesus of the Bible, but they'll have no power and clout within them. No revival can come from it because the Spirit of God won't accompany it because G the Holy Spirit's been given to make much of the biblical Jesus, not the pseudo-Jesus that we create within our churches, cultures, and traditions. So what's my goal for you? What's Pastor Russ after? More importantly, what perhaps is God's goal for you? Would you just put your eyes on the Word of God? Why? Because you have been called to be a witness to the authority of His name. And how can you be a witness to the authority of His name if you do not know who He is and His character and what He's done so that you can tell the stories of the work that He continues to do on earth today? If you want to know Jesus... You better know the Word. And if you want to live a life of purpose, you need to know the Word because you've been sent by that Word as a witness to every nation and tribe and tongue. Beginning in Jerusalem, and what's the message? That in His name, there is forgiveness of sin for all who, here's the Word, you ready? Repent. Repent. All right, self-sufficient, stubborn men in this room. I plead with you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and be the lead repenter in your family. 
We pound our chest about the Ephesians 5 call of the man. Yet we run from the meekness and kindness of the Savior that it's called to walk after. Having washed her with the water and the word. It's an act and a call to service. And you can't serve a neighbor until you serve a Savior. And for many of you, your, your, your gaps between your moments where you give the Savior your attention and then you turn your attention back to yourself and your own self-reliance are so big that it's hard to see the fruit of the Spirit ever in your life. Repent. Repent. Not because you're wrong, but because when you do so, you can come to a God who can make you right. Repent. Repent because He can forgive you. I had someone in the hallway tell me that they were trying to fix themselves before they talked to me. I said, it'll never work. Like, well, I, got I just feel like it's this way it should work. Well, I don't care what you feel. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know that we like to like, oh, you feel that? It must be the truth. We'll acknowledge it. I, I'm not going to acknowledge that. You were created in the image of God. You're not a cat. You're not a less than. You can't, you're not like, like you are an image bearer of God. And, and you can feel whatever you want. And we can acknowledge that you feel that. But at the end of the day, you've been too gloriously and wonderfully made for me to look over that and not lovingly and humbly say, man, man, hey, hey. There is a living water that we can drink from. You will never thirst again if you find it. You will never thirst again if you taste of it. And, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he has made it freely available to whosoever. So, so repent. And I, I get it. We're in the South. I'm saying repent. Everyone's like, oh, I got to get saved. And some of you should because you're not saved and you're a goat. And you act the part and you look like a sheep from a distance, but you're really just an unrepentant, like you need to be rebuked. Like you rebuke a goat. Like you're not a sheep. Like you need to, you need to be rebuked. And for some of you, like you're, you're, but you're in the South and so you've heard the gospel and you prayed the prayer like 17 times, but you never surrender the heart. And so it's still a bunch of stone that's in there. And you know it and I know it. And we're, we're playing the part and we're walking around the darkness like five, six days of the week. And we're like, but we're Christian on Sunday. And we pop out in the light and then we jump back in before anybody can see the baggage. And you're lying. You're lying. Look, why? 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 Seriously, why? I'm over time. I get it. But why? Why are we? Why would we want to just talk about God and not experience the power of God? Like, like why? Why? If he, if he didn't mean what he said, I get it. But like, if he really can forgive you, if he really can empower you with his spirit, if he really can change you, then why? Why stand in the darkness and act like you don't need repentance? Repent. Repent, repent. Oh, we're going to do it again. The altar's open. You move as the Lord leads. For some of you, you may want to run out that door. I get it. That's fine. If, but when you're confronted by the Spirit of God, you repent or you run. You repent or you run. It's what we do. You can repent or you can run. Move as the Lord leads.